Good morning. I bring greetings to you from the Saints at Restoration Church in Northwest uh, D.C. Uh, I am profoundly grateful for the work, the ministry, the love that you have shown our church over the course of years. Uh, you heard Danny pray a moment ago that uh, May the 1st was our 10 years uh, anniversary in the city. And so uh, I don't know, I honestly don't know where Restoration Church would be were it not for the saints of this church. I'm so thankful for the, the finances that you provided in our early days, the prayers that you so often offer. When, when I meet people from Capitol Hill, almost every single time they'll go, Restoration Church, oh yeah, we pray for you all the time. So I'm just profoundly thankful for your work. I cannot say enough. And so I hope this sermon will be one way that I can contribute something back to you because you've given us so much. So please continue to pray for us, send folks our way. Uh, if you're looking for a seat, we have plenty of seats that are open <laughs> in Northwest D.C. So uh, let, me, let me pray for us. We're going to be in the book of Ruth. Uh, I failed to notice the, uh, the number of, uh, that's on your pew Bible, what that's in, but nevertheless, it's on your program. You can see it there. Two. 222, you can see it on page 222. Let me pray for us before we dive into this book. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken, that you have not remained silent. And so may we submit ourselves to you, God, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning we are going to take a look at an amazing, true, short story in the pages of the Old Testament, which are the years preceding the coming of of Christ. Uh, the book that we will study is named for one of its prominent characters, the person of Ruth. However, you should know that the book is not ultimately about Ruth, nor is the story ultimately about Naomi and Boaz, of whom we will meet, nor is the story ultimately about you or me. It's not trying to teach us how to be industrious, to work hard. Uh, single ladies, this is not how to find your Boaz. All right. <laughs> That's not what this story is about. This story is here to teach us about redemption. Redemption. It's to teach us about the God of redemption. It's about life after darkness, love after loss, hope in the midst of pain. The story is meant to answer the question that is asked of the Lord in Psalm 10.1 when he writes, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And friends, if you've not asked that question of the Lord, one day you likely will. The world we live in is hard, and the unseen God is hard to sometimes see uh, through the trials and tribulations that we so often have to navigate. It's easy to think that God is not there, that he is either absent or worse, he doesn't care. Even though he's made all of these promises. And Ruth, what Ruth shows us is that the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, may appear to be absent, but in fact, he's there all along. All along he is there. He has not left us or forsaken us. This story is meant to convince us to trust the Lord, that he is the great redeemer, that he is working out his plan of redemption all around us. It's meant to convince you, it's meant to convince us uh, to trust him while you may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. This book is sort of be a kind of rod and staff that are meant to comfort you as you walk through that, to teach you, to teach us to trust the Redeemer who is working all things together for the good of those that love him, are called according to his purpose. 
And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to rehearse the story in its entirety. I'm going to kind of tell the story, and we'll come back at the very end and make some observations for our life together. So sit back, imagine as if you were watching the, one of the most dramatic, amazing stories you have ever watched on a movie. Uh, let, the, uh, let your imagination be informed by the text of Scripture as it paints this wonderful story of redemption. But first off, notice right there in that very first line in Ruth 1.1, it says that in the days when the judges ruled. This is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled. Now this is a a significant uh, part of the story because it sets the context of our story. God had made a promise to his descendant Abraham to give him a place, to make him a people for the sake of God's glory. And that place was the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan, the people, Abraham's family, was referred to as the Israelites. They were uh, enslaved in Egypt for some 400 plus years until the Lord delivered them from there uh, back into that land of Canaan. And the book here, just before, the book just before the book of Ruth is the book of Judges. And it documents this period of the days when the judges ruled in the land of Israel. That's the context. And so uh, it testifies, the book of Judges testifies to the early days of God's people coming into God's place. And if you turn back just one page in your Bible, you can see the very last sentence, and it tells you what life was like then, what was going on. It says there, look at the very last sentence, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The end. In other words, there's no good authority. Everyone is doing whatever they wanted to do. They worshiped whatever God they wanted to. Men, clearly in the book of Judges, we see they're abusing women. People uh, are killing other people for no good reason. Pride, jealousy, poor leadership, all of this was running rampant as Israel came into the land. The days, in other words, were dark and they were ugly. And plenty of people, I'm sure, wondered if God had abandoned them. And this story, friends, the story of Ruth is happening in the midst of all of that time. When everything was bleak, this story is meant to zoom into a few people so as to make sense of what was happening to the rest of the land. And so it's critical for you to understand the book of Ruth follows the book of Judges, not just in chronology, but in theology. There is an order to these books that tips us off to the point of why they're here. But as bleak as it is, as we read those first words, it even gets worse. As we read in there in the verse 1, there was also famine in the land. Now, we can't be sure of this. The text doesn't tell us. But oftentimes, when we read of famines in God's place of Israel, they often indicate a sign of God's judgment. Uh, Now, this is to be expected, right, because of so much of the idolatry that is occurring in the midst of this period. And so right off the bat, the book reflects this notion that God seems distant. Uh, The mood of the community is dark and gloomy. There is no fruit in the fields. And then things go from bad to even worse. Look at verse 1 again, second part there. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, 
and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so Elimelech takes his wife and two kids. They leave the land of promise, which is to say they leave the land of the promise and go to a land that is called Moab, which would have been understood to be a sort of enemy country. Moab uh, is the descendant of the unfaithful Lot. These were the same people that would not let the Israelites pass through them on their way into the land. And so they're leaving the land of promise to go to that place. Once again, an ominous sign. And it gets again worse. Verse 3, Elimelech dies. Verse 5, Mahlon and Kilian, Elimelech's children, they die. And so the wife, Naomi, is now a widow in a pagan foreign enemy country. Alone. Sort of. We find that the sons have taken some Moabitish wives, Orpah and Ruth. Uh, They are uh, widowed along with Naomi. These women both seem barren as they are with their husband for some 10 years with no children. One can only begin to imagine the pain, the grief, and the suffering that these women are facing. But light, we find, begins to break through in verse 6. Then she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now perhaps this is during a time of God's mercy when the land had rest or after one of the better judges like Othniel or Ehud. Regardless though, the Lord seems to be on the move as the text makes it clear, doesn't it, that the Lord is providing food. Naomi, having no reason to stay, every reason to return, uh, decides to go back home. So she and her two widowed daughters, they start to hike the road back to Bethlehem. But we see in verse 8, Naomi explains to the two grief-stricken ladies, listen, there's no reason for you to go with me as I go back. Because remember, they're from Moab. And so she says to them in verse 8, the following. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. But the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. A couple themes here, really important, that the author is going to emphasize and come back to. Like a movie developing a plot line, these are some significant verses that the author is going to develop. Uh, So we need to stop and pay attention to a couple things. First off, that word kind or kindly or kindliness, that word there uh, is a very important word in Scripture in general and in this book specifically. That Hebrew word behind that word there is hesed. This is one of the most theologically rich words in all of the Bible. So rich, in fact, there's no single English word that captures it. Sometimes referred to as loving kindness in the Bible. But what the word means, that hesed, that kindliness, what it means is God's covenant loyal love. His covenant loyal love. This word has the richness of God's character wrapped up in the bedding of his promise to his people. And we're going to see this word at pivotal places throughout the book. It's going to pop up. It's one of the themes of this book. And so as we remember, this book, remember, is not ultimately about us, not about Ruth. It's about God and his covenant loyal love. But Naomi speaks it to these widowed, grief-stricken, Moabitess women. She says to them, may God love you with his covenantal loyalty. 
And she also says something that introduces another thing that's going to be tracked. She says, may you find rest in a husband. We're going to see that play out in a major way. But for now, put that as a placeholder in your mind. But back to the story. Naomi, so grief-stricken, does what she thinks is best. She goes back home. She goes back home. Uh, she's, uh, we find in verses 11 to 14, she explains how uh, to these daughters that she has nothing for them. She says, in particular, I have no husband for you. She can't care for them. And to top it off, she says, look at verse 13. It's no good for you to go with me because the hand of the Lord is against me. Ever felt that way? As if the hand of the Lord was against you? Naomi, it seems, gets a bit nearsighted, understandably. She forgets the provision of a husband, of sons, even daughters-in-law, even proximity to the truth of God. They all go out the window in light of her present circumstances. It's, again, understandable, but it's easy to believe that when our circumstances are against us, that God is against us. But I wonder if we think the alternative way as well. Regardless, we see in verses 14 to 15, Orpah takes Naomi up on the offer. She heads back home to the pagan fields of Moab, but then we get a major turn in the story in verse 15. Take a look. And she, Naomi, said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, note that, and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Just picture this, friends. On that dusty road to Bethlehem, tears streaming down her face, Ruth rises, looks at Naomi in the face, and says with great conviction, stop telling me to leave. I'm going where you're going to live. I'm going to live where you're going to live. Israel and its people are going to be my people. And now I will take up, I will lay hold of your God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Lord, him, he's now my God. And I will follow him with you all the way to the end. And where you die, that's where I'm going to die. Naomi, we might imagine, lays her head into the neck of Ruth. She weeps. She understands. And as the scene fades back from that dusty road onto Bethlehem, we see two broken, widowed women embracing each other, and we are left in despair ourselves. Such sadness. Such brokenness. And yet, how encouraged are we of this amazing woman, Ruth? This is an impressive woman. An impressive woman of whom the grace of God is so evident. In a lot of ways, Ruth reminds us of the Lord, doesn't she? How she remains faithful in the, in the face of death and dismay. And she also expresses what it means to have true faith in the one true God. Do you remember the words of Christ who said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And whoever has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Friends, Ruth expresses this as clear as anybody else we read in the Bible. This woman believes. 
Unlike Orpah, she does not return to her family. She does not return to her gods. She sticks by Naomi through thick and thin, and she calls, note, she calls upon the covenant name of God. She calls upon Yahweh, the Lord. She renounces her other God in the process. She is willing even to die in order to tend to Naomi and follow the Lord, and she will show us even more, as we will see. Pray, friends, that you have faith like this. Pray that you are willing to tend to the wounded and the hurted like this. Pray that you have faith to follow the Lord like this. Well, Naomi and Ruth, they make their way back to the city of Bethlehem, and they finally arrive. The whole town hears of their coming. Naomi, still believing God is against her, instructs her people to call her Mara, which means bitter. She maintains that God is against her, yet she is not lacked faith. She continues to trust him, as we will see. She, and then she says something that the author is going to develop as she comes into the city. In verse 21, first part, she says to them as she comes in, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. As the scene fades out once more, we get some more light coming in on the scene at the second half of verse 22. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. <laughs> so as the sky, uh, the sky has a few shades of, of light pressing through the gray, the camera pans down on the fields as uh, Naomi and Ruth make their way into the city. She says these things. The camera pans down to the fields, and what do we see but the harvest of barley swaying in the breeze? Presumably, the harvest is coming, and the smile of God is beginning to come upon them. Winter may be here, but spring is on its way. The author here, friends, is tipping us off. There may be emptiness now, emptiness in Naomi, in Israel even as a whole, but fullness will soon be on the doorstep. Chapter 2 opens up with some information from the storyteller. Chapter 2, verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We go, interesting, who's that guy? Story moves on. Ruth wakes up. She says she's going to work to care for Naomi, to go work the fields. I want you to notice, this is significant in verse 2, that she is referred to as Ruth the Moabite. The author is intentionally doing that. He wants you to understand this is a foreigner. This is not considered one of those that is among God's covenantal people. And based upon Levitical law, Ruth, as both a widow and a foreigner, was allowed to glean the edges of the field, of the harvest fields. And so we can imagine one spring morning, Ruth setting out, picking as she goes. Just behind her is the gentle hand of the Lord moving with her every step. We read some heightened sarcasm from the storyteller in chapter 2, verse 3, when she happens upon the field belonging to, Noah, to Boaz. The Lord continues to move, friends, in the shadows of this story, just as he often does in our own lives. This worthy woman or this worthy man of the clan of Elimelech named Boaz, he happens to show up. And the first words we get from him out of his mouth are significant too because the first words out of his mouth are, verse 4, of the Lord. Lord be with you. Verses 5 to 7, we get this interaction between Boaz and the overseer of the land. Boaz asks, who's this girl over here I've not seen before? And the young man, the overseer, said, she's that Moabite girl that came back with Ruth or sorry, they came back with Naomi, and she's been hard at it. She's been working all day. 
And right here, our hearts begin to beat a bit quicker. We wonder, how is Boaz going to react to this woman, Ruth? Well, our ears are relieved when we hear the overwhelming kindness of the worthy Boaz. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young women or the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So though she is from an enemy foreign land and he's never met this woman, Boaz serves to make provision for her, to protect her and overwhelm her with grace. And how does Ruth respond to all of this? She falls to the ground and says, essentially, what have I done that you should be so kind to a foreign woman like me? Again, emphasizing, the story's emphasizing that she is outside God's covenantal people. And that's the question she asks. And Boaz's response back to her is, he says, I've heard about what you've done. I heard about what you've done. He admires this woman's uh, faith, her character, her hard work, her loyalty. Boaz even prays down a reward from the Lord for her actions. See, from verse 12, the author would have us to understand that Boaz understands Ruth to have taken refuge under Yahweh's, under the Lord's wings. Now, guys, that's significant because it reveals to us uh, even more that Ruth has faith in the one true and living God. But also, notice Boaz is seen as a kind of feather in the wings of God. He is an instrument of God's sovereign grace manifesting itself to Ruth and Naomi. I mentioned that the times of judges, remember, were full of darkness, even the abuse of women. And yet here we see, friends, what it looks like to be a true man and to honor women. To counteract the spirit of the times of judges. Ruth, overwhelmed by the grace of Boaz, notes his favor and his kindness to her. Again, we see she recognizes her position as one outside the uh, people of Israel. You can see that there in verse 13. Although, as we will see, guys, this is a significant part of the story. Ruth is slowly being immersed into the people of God, as the Gentiles are today. We've already seen that she has expressed faith in the God of the Israelites, but will, here's a question, will the Israelites take her in? Well, the scene in the barley fields winds down as Boaz lavishes more and more grain upon Ruth. That's verses 14 to 16. And loaded down with the fruit of the harvest, Ruth makes her way back home as the sun, we might imagine, sets in the distance. She's been working hard all day, sun setting. She's going home, tons of grain on her back. Remember, she left with nothing. And so bags of barley on her back, she busts through the door of her new home. And there sitting in the corner is the embittered Naomi, broken and very possibly hungry. And her eyes look up as she sees Ruth walks in the door. 
Ruth is overwhelmed with goods. And Naomi's face immediately lightens up as she springs to help Ruth and sort of unload the grain, we might imagine. And remember, she left empty and she's coming back full. Naomi asks in verse 19, well, where'd you get all of this? My goodness, where did all this come from? Who took notice of you? This is amazing. And Ruth, setting the grain down on the table, we might imagine, without even looking up at Naomi, says, some guy named Boaz. (laughs) Naomi immediately stops what she's doing. We could imagine maybe even if she has the bag of grain, the grain begins to fall to the floor. She says, face flushed, looking at Ruth, Did you say Boaz? Yeah, yeah, some guy named Boaz. Remember, the reader has been introduced to Boaz, but we know that Ruth has not yet. Look in verse 20. Some important words here. Look at verse 20, chapter 2. This is Naomi responding. And Naomi said to her her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living of the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So she prays a blessing on Boaz. She says that through him, the Lord has shown, there's the word again, hesed, kindness, to the living and the dead. So Naomi concludes in her excitement, the Lord is showing covenantal loyal love by providing a redeemer in Boaz who is a blessing to the living and the dead. Now you should be asking a question right now. What does that mean? What does it mean that he's going to be some blessing to the living and the dead? Why is she so excited about this? What does this guy, Boaz, being a redeemer, have to do with the Lord not forsaking the living or the dead? This is a critical part of the story. In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 25 to 30, the law in place said basically that if someone in your clan dies, it was the responsibility of a redeemer to purchase back all the property and all the people of that relative in order to redeem and to keep it in the clan, to keep it in the family. And one of the assumptions of that law also included what is called a Leverite marriage that can be found in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. The Leverite marriage taught that if a man died without any sons, a relative would then marry the widow and have children with him in order to extend the name of the dead. That way, a family's name and their resources would not be wiped out. There would be a redeemer in that sense. Or particularly as it relates to this story, the line of Elimelech and Mahalon and Kilian, they would not die out. They wouldn't be wiped out. And Naomi understands all this. So, Naomi saw in Boaz the hand of the Lord because as a relative, he was a man that was able to redeem, to buy Ruth, and by extension of her, Elimelech's name, her husband's name, would not die, and they would be cared for. And as we are going to see, there's going to be even more. And so this is what is behind those words of blessing to the living. That would be Naomi and Ruth and the dead. That would be Elimelech, Mahlon, and Kilian. Blessing to both of them. Naomi had a vision of redemption amidst her sorrow. Light was beginning to burst through the heart of Naomi. Chapter 3 is Naomi's plan to put the dominoes in place to have this redemption all go down. Her plan is working, friends, in concert with the revealed will of the Lord in his word. God, we have to see this. God is clearly, sovereignly working through this story. 
from the famine to the relief in Bethlehem to Ruth happening upon the field of Boaz. And so Naomi rightly sees all of this as evidence of the Lord's hesed, his covenantal loyal love. And so she is acting in concert with the word of the Lord. He is providentially moving. Naomi is working in concert to that providence as she is directed by the word of the Lord. Because remember, guys, the Lord is sovereign to move, but we are responsible to act. Sovereignty of God, friends, sometimes gets abused to think that we have no part. That's simply not true. God uses the agency of our obedience to bring about his sovereign good plans. And that's what Naomi is doing. So light has begun to show once again in Naomi's heart. She trusts the Lord. She puts a plan in place. We can read about that plan from chapter 3 down to 1. Chapter, one, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And what comes next is the acting out of that plan. We read about is the acting out of that plan. This is Ruth now going into action with that plan. In verse 6, take a look at that, chapter 3, verse 6. It says there, this is Ruth. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. So Ruth goes down to the threshing floor. They're harvesting this barley. She goes down there in the cover of darkness. And what Ruth is going to do is she's going to make a marriage proposition to Boaz. Men, not a good idea to do this, right, in normal circumstances. I don't know, maybe you should. But Ruth is going down there. She's going to make a marriage proposition. Boaz has had a couple drinks. We see that in verse 7. He's not drunk. He gets a little tired, and he lays down, and he goes to sleep. Ruth slips in. She uncovers his feet so as to expose them to weather. And she then lies at his feet. That word in verse 8, startled, in Hebrew, that's the word shivered. So apparently he got cold. And as soon as he wakes up, what does he see? But a woman lying at his feet. <laughs> Can you imagine? Verse 9, chapter 3. He said to who are you? Again, it's dark. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. <laughs> yeah, Wow. What she just did there was offage a marriage proposal. She's calling upon Boaz to act as a redeemer, just as the Lord prescribed in his word. And I want you to notice, this is so huge. Notice, notice the words that she used. Spread your wings over your servant. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Look back at chapter 2, verse 12. Remember what Bo Boaz prayed for Ruth. Boaz prayed that the Lord would repay her for taking refuge under the wings of the Lord. And now Ruth is saying, be the answer to your own prayer. Isn't this amazing? She borrows the same prayer from Boaz and says, be the wings of God to me. You are a redeemer. You can be the wings of the Lord to me. What will he say? Well, with hushed tones, we wait. The score of the movie likely builds Verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. There it is again. There's that word. May you be blessed. There's that word, hesed. May the covenantal loyalty, covenantal loyal love of God be with you, be on you. Why, Boaz? Because she didn't just go get married to just anybody. 
She went after the Redeemer. She acted in true faith. She set aside father, mother, and she went after the Redeemer. She went after the Redeemer. She went after the Redeemer. Boaz agrees to go along with a marriage proposition, but then we get these shocking verses in verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. He says back to her, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. What? Right? Remain tonight and in the morning, if, if, if he will redeem you, good. Let this other guy redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So, right, we're going, what, what, what's good? Before we didn't have enough husbands, now we got too many husbands, right? What is going on? So, so right, we're just, the, the storyteller here is amazing, right? God's word is just seeping through this. What's going to happen? So we have two potential redeemers. And so as we come to the end of chapter three, let's kind of just press pause on the movie for a moment, Okay. Press pause in the movie. We are left with a lot of questions that need to be tied up in this final chapter. First off, will Naomi remain bitter and empty? Secondly, will redemption come to the living, Naomi and Ruth, as well as the dead, Elimelech, Mahlon, and Kilian? Thirdly, if so, who's it going to come from? Boaz or Mr. So-and-so? Fourthly, what will be the legacy of this amazing woman, Ruth? Fifth, what will come of God's people? Will they get a king? Will they return to the Lord? Sixth, how does all of this speak into our own need to trust the Lord amidst darkness? Maybe even we might say seventh, most importantly, what does this say of God? All of that has to be tied up in this last chapter. So let's press play, sit back down, here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz gets up early in the morning and he goes to the kind of first century Starbucks, all right? It's the town meeting place. It's the gate, okay? And what do you know? Guess who happens upon the gate in the morning? Mr. So-and-so, the guy closer in line. Boaz stops him. He assembles a witness of 10 elders. That's verse 2, chapter 4. The scene now becomes more like a courtroom. Listen to this in chapter 4, verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our, our relative Elimelech. So apparently, Naomi had some land that we didn't know about before. Boaz does as Scripture would have him. As the Redeemer, he makes the land available to this guy that's closer. What will Mr. So-and-so say? Right? I think all of us are going, no, 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 no. Don't take it, don't take it, don't take it, Right? Well, look what we get in verse, chapter 4, verse 4. So, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, Bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, this is Boaz talking, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you uh, to redeem it, and I will come after you. And Mr. So-and-so says, I will redeem it. No! Right? This is not... The play, I mean, we trust, thanks be to God that this guy's there, but he wants it. He's going, he's going to take Ruth, or actually, he thinks he's going to take the land. Let's keep reading. Boaz responds in verse 5 with his sort of ace in the pocket. Then Boaz says, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Noab, Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, 
Note the language, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. This is key, guys. He's, in other words, Mr. So-and-so's got to not only take the land and stuff, he's going to like that, but you've got to take this foreign lady too, Ruth. But note why. This is so important. Note why Boaz says you have to do this. Look at it. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead. Underline that. Well, to our relief, Mr. So-and-so says, I'm out. Woo! All right, verse 6, he's out. And guess who's in? Our guy, Boaz. He's in. All right. The right of redemption now finally falls to Boaz and listens to not only how, but why he redeems. Why does he redeem? Verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are, you, are, uh, you are the witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all belong to Kilian and to Mahlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are uh, witnesses this day. That's the elders and the peoples there. You are witnesses this day. So the reason why Boaz redeems is in order to perpetuate the name of the dead, Elimelech, Mahlon, and Kilian. And twice now, in just a few verses, we've seen this whole story of Boaz as redeemer have at its heart the perpetuation of the name of the dead. It's critical to the point of this story of Ruth. And look at the response of the elders to Boaz's proposition to take her in, to redeem them. This is the elders' response. Verses, chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. These are key verses. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord, may Yahweh, make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Guys, this is an amazing prayer. This is an amazing prayer by the elders that the author has included for us because it's important to understand the story. These elders have requested of the Lord that Ruth become one of the great matriarchs of the Israelite people. Remember all the emphasis on Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the Moabite? Now they're praying that she not just be Ruth the Moabite, she be Ruth the Israelite. And not just Ruth the Israelite, Ruth the one that is online with Rachel, who was the wife of uh, Jacob. Also uh, Leah, the mother of Judah. And they would have known, every Israelite would have known that the king comes from what line? Judah. Right. You can see that link to Judah down there in verse 12. The king is going to come out of Judah, and they're praying. These elders are praying that Ruth is going to be one of those kinds of gals. And they go on praying that Boaz, Boaz would be renowned in Bethlehem. I don't know if you've ever heard of the city of Bethlehem before. Right? Storylines coming together. And my how this shift of Ruth the Moabite to prayers of her becoming one of the greats of peoples, uh, of God's people's history. She's prayed, as I mentioned, to be the Ruth Israelite because of Boaz, her redeemer. She's prayed to be Ruth among God's people because of a redeemer. 
Did it come true? Did it happen? Was the line extended? Is there abundance? What does all this tell us about God and what does it tell us about God in the midst of suffering? Look at verse 13. I might blow my top when I read this because this is so amazing. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her. Note the emphasis of how this happened. And the Lord gave. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. <laughs> so the Lord moved in Boaz and Ruth to give them a son. That is, the Lord so loved Boaz and Ruth that he gave them a son. Why? To perpetuate the name of the living and the dead, just as he had done in the other matriarchs of faith. And then the women, after this, the women attending to Ruth and Naomi, they respond by rejoicing. And so do we, right? Baby boy's here. Line's going to go. There's going to be life among the dead. The name's going to advance, but that's not all. Look what they say of this baby boy. Now, y'all stay with me. Stop at verse 15. Don't read past it. All right? Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. A restorer of life. A restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Stop there. Now notice the reference to the Redeemer has transferred. Did you catch that? Now the notion of Redeemer has been placed to the child that has been born. He's now the Redeemer. And not only is this baby a Redeemer, he is a Redeemer that is said to be a restorer of life. May his name be renowned in Israel. My goodness, who is this baby? Huge expectations placed on this little boy. Who is it? Well, they named this special little miracle baby. Look at verse 17. Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Who was the father of David. Looking for a mic drop? There it is. Wow. Do you realize that we've been reading about the great-grandparents of King David, the greatest history in the history of Israel? The king that brought life after death from the period of the judges, King David. And as if all of this wasn't amazing enough, the movie leaves for us the most amazing piece of the end of the story, this ultimate mic drop. David is the lineage here. He's the one that's going to come out of the womb of Boaz and Ruth. And if you're wondering why verse 18 to 22 are there, that's the kind of genealogical record to say this is all real. It's connected. This is all true. That miracle baby boy born to a formerly barren, widowed, pagan woman was none other than the grandfather of the greatest king in the history of God's people, which means Ruth was the great-grandmother of David. Wow. Do you remember the setting of this story? What was the setting? Judges 21, 25. No king in Israel. Everybody's doing whatever they want. All seemed lost. God was on the move to not only bring a king, but the greatest king Israel had ever known, which explains, by the way, the next two books in the Bible are Samuel and Kings. That's when the kings come in. But there's even more to this story. 
as if that's not enough. Flip over to Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1, that's to the right. I love that sound. Look at verse 5. Who was Boaz's mom? A woman by the name of Rahab. If you don't know who that is, that's another story, another sermon for another day. But let me just tell you just a glimpse of who that woman was. She was also another foreign woman, was a prostitute that was used of God to bring into the land as Israelites, the Israelites were coming into the land. Rahab, a prostitute, foreign woman, gives birth to Boaz, who marries Ruth and brings about redemption, the restore of life to all of Israel. And as if that is not enough, you're saying, come on, Nathan, there's more. Yes, way more. Do you remember Ruth's great-grandson David's wife? Look at verse 6. She's referred to there as Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. <laughs> Come on, y'all. God is amazing, right? He is amazing. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, the woman that David led into adultery, who bore the wisest king the world has ever known, Solomon. But we've saved the best for last. You say there's more? Yes. Look down to the rest of Matthew 1. Let me tell you the rest of the story. God would go on to make a covenant with Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson, King David. God makes a covenant with Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson, King David. Makes a covenant with him. 2 Samuel chapter 7. That'd be the very next book, by the way, right after Ruth. And he said that a son of David would sit on the throne as a king forever. Made a promise to David that a king's going to come that's going to sit on the throne forever. Take a look at there at Matthew 1, verse 5. Boaz came by Rahab. Boaz and Ruth gave Obed. Obed was, the Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. Slide down to verse 16. The line goes to Joseph, who is the father of his adopted son, Jesus Christ. The king of kings and the lord of lords. The restorer of life, the true and forever redeemer, the greater Boaz, Jesus Christ the Lord. This is not fable. This is true. What began as a story in the midst of the dark period of the judges, a time where there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, a time when most everyone wondered where God had gone. In that time, God was working in the midst of a famine and of death and hopelessness and loss. He was doing it from an otherwise typical Israelite family and an atypical foreign woman. And through it all, God brought light into the darkness. He brought life out of death. He brought joy out of sorrow. He brought hope out of hopelessness. And he did it through a redeemer who was a restorer of life forever. A redeemer who had paved the way for another redeemer. This child, Obed, on goes the greater redeemer, Christ Jesus, who was also born in another city by the name of, or actually in the same city, Bethlehem. Same city. What was David doing there? His great-grandmother was there. 
the greater king, Jesus Christ. And on that night, it was said of him when he was born, Jesus the Christ, for unto you is born this day in the city of Boaz and Ruth, in the city of David, a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This one, Jesus Christ, perpetuates the name of God in all the earth. Where there is death, he brings restoration of life. He is the redeemer, Jesus Christ, the redeemer of the world. So when the whole world was dark and seemingly without hope, just as Naomi was, empty, when all seemed lost, when all was dead, when there was no king, when everybody was doing whatever they wanted to do, God so loved the world that he gave his only son and brought him into the world. And he was born of the Virgin Mary who lived a sinless life He never failed. He never failed. He obeyed God's word to the fullest. And because he did, as the fullness of God and the fullness of man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he goes to the cross to pay for the sins. That's the thing that causes us to do whatever we want and to reject God. Our sin within ourselves. And God didn't leave us in that darkness. He sent his Son into the world, born of that woman, lived a sinless light, and he died to pay a Redeemer's debt. He is our redeemer. He paid for our sin. Those that repent and believe, he died. He redeemed us. He purchased us out of the slavery to our own sin. And in his death and then in his resurrection, he becomes the name that brings the restoration of life, to bring living, to perpetuate the name of God in all of the world. Jesus Christ, the greater redeemer. He brings life after death in his resurrection. So my goodness, we are... We are tempted to draw a hundred conclusions about this amazing men, uh, amazing people and woman in this story. Uh, but I want to leave us gazing upon this God. The God that never gives up on his promises. The God that is loyal to his people even though they are so often loyal, not loyal to him. The God whose love never fails. The God who uses forgotten people from foreign places in order to accomplish his forever glory. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. The God of the members of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Your God. Your God. This is your God. The God who is and forever will be. The God who the angels sing as we sit here now. The God that made the heavens, the mountains, the rivers, and the oceans. The God that made every creeping thing. The God that sustains the world by the word of his power. The God of Mongolia and China and Australia and Venezuela. The God of Russia and Algeria and Morocco. The earth is his and the fullness of thereof and the world and those who dwell within it. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He is the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. Worship him. Trust him. Nothing can thwart his good purposes in the world. When everything is dark and without hope, you can trust him. God is there. He's lurking in the shadows, and sometimes he's right there in the middle of the day. We just can't always see him. He's moving, and he's moving amidst people and places in concert with his will. He's moving the world to see the fullness of redemption. We can trust him. We can trust him. He doesn't stand far away, psalmist. He's near. He doesn't hide himself in times of trouble. He's working. He's working. He brought redemption to Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth in the midst of their darkness. He moved Ruth from a foreigner to a friend when all seemed lost, and he's done even more in Christ. He's done even more in Christ. He did it all in a time when life seemed empty and the world seemed lost. While the whole world thought Christ lost on the the cross, we know that in that moment he was winning more than he ever was. 
And then that tomb turned into a womb that gave birth to the restore of life, Christ, the forever resurrected king. We trust him. We can trust him to uh, work amidst our sorrows, amidst our difficulties, amidst our doubts. But brothers and sisters, I know that this is hard. I know that life is hard. My calendar this week is full already of people that are hurting. Children starve. Bullets hit innocent bystanders. Racism runs rampant. Women are abused. Natural disasters wreak havoc. There seems to be no king. And everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. But a redeemer has come. And he will come again. And he will bring about the restoration of all things. He is doing something. So, beloved, these light momentary afflictions, they are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We have to learn to look not at the things that are things, but look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. but The things that are unseen, they are eternal. Christ has purchased that. While our earthly home may be destroyed, we have a building from this God, the God of Ruth, the God of Boaz, the God that brought life from dead places when all else seemed lost. And so keep alert, brothers and sisters. Keep alert. Keep alert. Like Boaz found Ruth, may he, be fi- may he find you working in the fields, looking to the horizon, waiting for his return, knowing that in the midst of sorrow and difficulty, he is king and he's bringing life from dead places. And lastly, to you, friend, there's not trusted in Christ. Christ is not your Lord, not your Redeemer. I appeal to you. I wonder if you feel like Naomi. Do you believe God is against you and you're bitter? Death and dismay may surround you. You feel empty. Right now, friend, I want you to know God is making his appeal of redemption to you in this moment. I am a servant of the Most High King. I did nothing to deserve this, but he is making his appeal through me to you to follow Christ as your Redeemer, to bring life out of your dead places, to find hope in the midst of sorrow. Friend, the greater Boaz has come. Redemption has come. Christ is your Redeemer. He can bring life to your dead places. He can restore life. He can fill you up for his forever glory. He can offer you hope in his redemption. Repent of sin, the sin that brought about that separation between you and God. Turn from that sin and trust in Jesus to pay it all and to buy you back and to bring you into his family that you might be part of his people forever and ever, amen. Trust him. You can trust him. He's at work. I know it doesn't seem like it, but in the same way Ruth and Naomi didn't think of it either, but he was working. He's working around you. Trust Jesus. Follow Jesus. Look to Jesus. Hope in Jesus. He is real. He is not absent. He is at work even now. Now, friend, is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. Like Ruth, leave your native land, your other idols. Throw yourself under the refuge of his wings. Make his people your people as you trust this God to be your God. But I leave us all by pleading with you to trust the son of Ruth, the son of David, the great redeemer, Christ the king. He has come and he will come again. And he is at work among the nations to bring about the fullness of redemption. And we await his return. Let's give praise and thank him now. Lord God Almighty, you are so good. Lord, we confess it's hard. So much death, 
so much dismay. Sometimes it feels as though you're absent. But God, thank you for the story of our sister Ruth. Thank you for her faith and how it teaches us that we can trust you, that you're at work, you're bringing redemption. And thank you, God, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Lord, our great Redeemer, our great High King, the one that brought redemption for our sin, the one that is going to bring the consummation of all things. He's the one we hope in. May he trust him. May we trust him in this time. We pray in his name. Amen.